0: Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. If you want to see the various aircraft described today, please check out the pictures on the World of Warbirds Facebook page. Growing up in rural Quebec, Canada, one chore that I sometimes had to do was to help my dad pile firewood. For the most part, this is a fairly simple task, not requiring a lot of thought. Bigger logs go to the bottom, smaller sticks further up, and try to stack the wood so that the pile rises straight and plumb and isn't unstable. This is easy when the sticks are straight. You can drop your pieces just about anywhere on the pile. However, when you get a gnarly twisted one, sometimes it seems that they won't go anywhere. Dad used to say, just put those ones aside for a bit, son. There's always a place for the strange ones. Later on, I thought that this statement was quite philosophical when thinking about different types of people. When I started learning about the P-39 era Cobra, I remember Dad's line again. What follows is the fascinating story of this ugly duckling aircraft that nobody wanted until it found its proper place and became not a swan, but lived up to its name, the Cobra, and became a prodigious killer of enemy aircraft. Design and Development Just before the Second World War, the Bell Aircraft Company was the new kid on the block in the aviation world. Larry Bell, the founder of the company, was familiar with dealing with adversity and somehow turning it into success. He was born in 1894 in Mentone, Indiana, but the family later moved to Santa Monica, California. In 1912, he had dropped out of high school to join his brother, Grover, to work as an aircraft mechanic. He suffered one of his first losses when Grover was killed in a plane crash and Larry quit the industry, vowing to not return. However, he was later convinced to take a job at the Glenn L. Martin Company. Clearly, he was talented and was Martin's shop foreman at the age of 20, and not long afterwards became the company's general manager and then vice president. He was clearly ambitious, not being satisfied to simply be an employee. He wanted to become Martin's business partner. Eventually, things came to a head, and Bell forced the issue with Mr. Martin. He was refused, and Bell left the company. Again, he left the industry, but was back four years later, in 1928, when he started to work at Consolidated Aircraft in Buffalo, New York. Again, Bell advanced rapidly to become general manager, but it still wasn't enough. He wanted to have and run his own aviation company. However, there were already two major airplane companies in Buffalo, and he didn't think that there was place for a third. Opportunity arrived when Consolidated Aircraft decided to relocate to San Diego in 1935. Larry arranged to stay behind, take over the building, and finally form his own company, the Bell Aircraft Corporation. Their first design was a failure. The YFM-1 Aracuda was a strange-looking mid-wing twin-engined bomber destroyer, with the engines being configured as pushers, meaning that the propeller was at the back behind the wing. This freed up the front of the engine nacelles to contain a gyro-stabilized 37mm 1.46 inch M4 cannon and gunner to operate it. We will see shades of this theme again with the Air Cobra. Anyway, the aircraft had many flaws and difficulties that were deemed too hefty to overcome, one of them being that the gunner, located at the front of the engine cell would be potentially chopped up by the propeller behind him, if he ever had to bail out. The program was cancelled and they only built 13 of them. However, Bell was still enamored with the M4 cannon. This gun, designed by John Browning and built by Colt, had been conceived primarily as an anti-aircraft weapon. It had a muzzle velocity of 2,000 feet per second and could fire 150 high explosive or armor-piercing shells per minute which could penetrate one inch of armor plating at 500 yards. Its 30 round magazine could be fired by hand or by remote control through a solenoid. It seemed like a good idea to put in a high powered anti-aircraft cannon in an aircraft meant to hunt other airplanes. Even one hit with this cannon seemed likely to bring down an opponent. Bell became obsessed with the idea. In 1937, his chance to make this idea a reality arrived with the United States Army Air Corps Circular Proposal X-609. It was looking for a single-engine, high-altitude interceptor. The new aircraft was to have at least 1,000 pounds of heavy armament, including a cannon. It was to be powered by the liquid-cooled Allison engine with a General Electric Turbo supercharger have tricycle landing gear, which was novel at the time for a fighter, a level airspeed of at least 360 mph, and a climb to 20,000 feet within 6 minutes. Bell went to work. Prototypes Being obsessed with the M4 cannon, Bell started with it and a pair of Browning M2 50 caliber machine guns in the nose, and subsequently built the airplane around this weapons package. Being tied to the Allison V1710 liquid-cooled V12 engine, he didn't have the option of inserting the cannon in the middle of the engine block like some BF109s. The pusher configuration just wouldn't do either, so they took the very unconventional position of moving the engine to the middle of the fuselage behind the pilot. The engine power was transferred to the prop via a 10-foot long shaft Which traveled under the cockpit. Initially, all this extra shafting and gearing would seem to be a recipe for trouble, however it was found to be very reliable and it was even provided with its own lubrication system, which was separate from the engine oil system. Being liquid cooled, the radiator needed to go somewhere, so it was tucked in the wing center section underneath the engine. The oil cooler was placed nearby, and the cooling air for these devices entered through intakes in the front of the wing root and was directed by ducting to the radiator faces, departing through three controllable hinge flaps near the trailing edge of the center section. A raised oval intake immediately behind the canopy admitted air for the carburetor. So with the engine and its systems out of the way, the cannon could easily be placed in the nose, which was distinctive in its very smooth and clean look, and in keeping with the streamlined modern style of Art Deco design from the 1930s. The placement of the shaft under the cockpit, moving the pilot up quite high, allowed for great all-around visibility. Speaking of the cockpit, it was also very distinct in having doors that opened like those of a car, and even had door windows that lowered like a car. The sleek and innovative design sure looked like a winner. As the main body was already so packed with equipment, there was no space for a fuselage mounted fuel tank, so all of the fuel was stored in the wings. The prototype XP 39 first flew in April of 1938. The climb rate seemed okay, with only 5 minutes to 20,000 feet, which was better than requested. However, it just couldn't achieve the speed demanded in the proposal what to do. The Army Air Force ordered the prototype to be evaluated in NACA wind tunnels to try to solve the problem. In the end, it was decided that by reducing drag, perhaps the speed objectives could be met. However, the airplane was already pretty clean, and there wasn't much left to smooth over, except the scoop for the turbocharger. In August 1939, a fateful decision was made to solve the speed problem. They would remove the turbocharger in order to reduce the drag of its, of its associated air scoop and just leave the supercharger. Although this would give the aircraft an increase of speed, it would also doom the aircraft to be unable to perform well above 12,000 feet. It was a solution that seemed similar to cutting off the head to cure a headache. To go back to the beginning, when I was talking about stacking firewood, Bell had built a plane that would have trouble finding its spot in the woodpile. Production. There was one potential customer that was pretty desperate. The British. In 1940, the British Direct Purchase Commission was in the United States, shopping for a combat aircraft, and Bell wanted to get the contract the Brits required a speed of 394 miles per hour at 14,000 feet. So far, the P-39 had only been able to make 371. Although Bell knew that it would be a stretch to achieve the required speed, at the risk of introducing another metaphor, they started shining the hell out of their turd of an airplane. They really pulled out the stops in their effort to reduce drag and weight, The rudder and elevator were reduced in size. The canopy glass was smoothed to the frame with special putty. Doors for access to the guns and landing gear had been seen bulging in flight, which caused drag, so these were stiffened to hold them flush. The cooling air exit port was made smaller. New engine exhaust stacks were fitted to increase thrust. On the test aircraft, the machine gun ports were covered and the antenna mast was removed and a special single-piece engine cowling was installed. Another 200 pounds of equipment was removed, and lastly, the test aircraft got a serious detailing job, with 20 coats of primer with much sanding between the coats. Even the required camouflage paint scheme was carefully sanded to remove the edges between the colors, to remove as much drag as humanly possible, and leave the aircraft as slippery as could be. Even with all this, the test airplane was only able to achieve the speed of 391 miles per hour, three miles per hour short of the target. However, the commission actually had wiggle room of plus or minus 4% in their target, and this tricked out P-39 had actually achieved it. The Brits ordered 675 of them, however, asked that the nose weapons be changed to a 20mm Hispano-Suzia cannon, and 250 cals, and adding four 303-inch Browning machine guns in the wings. This production run to the Brits was named Air cobra France ordered 200 also, although they were out of the war before receiving any. Operational History When the Royal Air Force started receiving their Air cobras in mid-1941, they found out that what they had bought and what they had gotten were two different things. With their non-souped-up production models, they were not able to get above 355 miles per hour, making the Aerocobra slower than their existing aircraft, such as the Hawker Hurricane and Supermarine Spitfire, and the lack of the turbocharger meant that the higher the plane climbed, the worse the performance got. The Brits were also critical about the fancy car door cockpit, as the roof was fixed, unlike all other fighter aircraft, it was impossible to bail out by just jettisoning the canopy, popping the seatbelt, and flipping upside down to drop out. You had to climb out the side door. Lastly, in the Brits' wet climate, they found that the view through the windscreen was terrible in heavy rain. The Brits felt that they had been bamboozled by a Yankee con job. Only one British squadron, number 601, County of London, was assigned to use the Air Cobra in action. They were hoping for an upgrade from their Hawker Hurricanes, but they got the Air Cobra instead. On the 9th of October, 1941, four Air cobras were sent to attack some enemy barges near Dunkirk. It would be the RAF's only operational use of the Air Cobra, and within months, the unit was happily re-equipped with Spitfires. The Brits tried some experiments with one of their Air cobras including the first successful landing of a tricycle-wheeled aircraft on an aircraft carrier. But in the end, they just didn't want the Air Cobra at all, including the ones that Bell was still building for them back in the States. Now, nobody wanted them, so the U.S. government claimed them and sent them to the Pacific instead. They renamed them P-400, which seems like another marketing job. The 400 was supposed to refer to the advertised but never achieved top speed. In the Pacific, the P-400 performed well in ground attack, but were outclassed by the Japanese Zero and were restricted by poor range and the constant altitude deficiencies. Although P-400s claimed 80 0 shot down, they also lost about 80 P-400s, making a poor bargain. After a while, it became a joke in the Pacific that the p 400 Was just a P-40 with a zero on its tail. Ouch, that hurts. Another unit that got P-39s was the 99th Fighter Squadron, known more commonly as the Tuskegee Airmen. Again, like the Brits, they might have thought that they were getting an upgrade from their old P-40 Warhawks. However, they too only flew the type for a few weeks before upgrading to P-47s and ultimately to their red-tailed P-51 Mustangs. The P-39 was running out of places to go. Actually, to return to my woodpile analogy just one more time, a perfect corresponding spot had just opened up for the misshaped P-39, Russia. Some of the British ordered, and subsequently rejected, P-39s were sent early on to Russia and soon became a veritable stream of what the Russians like to call Kobrushka, or Little Cobras, would start flowing to the Eastern Front via Lend-Lease. The disadvantages of the P-39 were actually nullified in Russia. Lack of high altitude performance? Who cares? In the air war over Russia, most fighting was below 15,000 feet. Poor range? Doesn't matter. The Russians were fighting over their own territory and would take off, intercept, or attack short-range targets and be back to fly another three or four sorties on the same day. The Russians also liked the firepower, which was great for their style of getting in close and finishing off their opponent with a quick burst of devastating firepower. They actually removed the wing guns when they arrived in order to improve the Aerocobra's roll rate they didn't miss the extra guns as their own Yak fighters only used nose-mounted guns also. The Russians appreciated the Air cobra's tough construction and reliable radios, which their own Russian fighters just didn't have. Initially, at least, only one in ten Russian-made aircraft had an installed radio, and even those were not respected by the pilots, being constructed of cardboard circuit boards and going on the blink at the slightest bit of damp. Soviet pilots were used to communicating with each other via hand signals, as was done in the First World War. Having a radio that actually worked to coordinate with your wingman was a quantum leap. There is a lingering misconception that the Soviets used their kabrushkas as tank busters or close support aircraft. Perhaps because of the nose-mounted cannon, people figure that it must have been used against tanks. Although this probably did happen, and although the P-39 certainly was used in strafing attacks, its primary job was interception and top cover for the real close support aircraft such as the IL-2. For a fighter aircraft that was so thoroughly rejected by everybody else, the P-39 got an impressive number of kills against the Luftwaffe in Russia, taking on and dispatching BF-109s, Focke-Wulf FW-190s, Ju-87s, and Ju-88s. It's noteworthy that the last plane shot down by the Luftwaffe was a Soviet P-39, when it went up against a jet-powered Me-262. That's okay. The score was evened out the next day, when the Soviets scored their last air victory in the sky over Prague, bringing down a Wolf FW-189. The Soviet aircraft was a P-39 Kobrushka. Although Australia, France, Italy, and Portugal all operated P-39s at one time or another, the type will be forever associated with its service in Russia. There were many P-39 variants, with a two-seat trainer being built. Some others were modified with cameras for photo reconnaissance, although most of the various variants can be seen as tinkering with fuel tank sizes, changes to the propeller, or adding armor. Major changes would have to wait for the offspring of the P-39, which was known as the P-63 King Cobra, which we will be looking at in the next episode. One interesting type was the XFL Arabonita, which was a carrier-based version of the P-39. In order to compete for this contract, Bell had to engineer the Erebonita to be a tailwheel aircraft. During the testing phase, the lack of the turbocharger and the poor performance at altitude pretty much sank the Era Bonita for the Navy. Also, there was a feeling that the Navy was prejudiced against liquid-cooled engines. The Era Bonita was rejected by the Navy, which went on to choose other aircraft in the competition, namely the Grumman F4F Wildcat and the Vought F4U Corsair. Pilots and Survivors Another fascinating element of the Aerocobra service in Russia is that the majority of the 4719 of them were flown there by ferry command. This flight across North America and up the Yukon to Alaska, then through Siberia and finally to the killing skies of the Eastern Front in a single-engine aircraft using the navigation and weather services available in the 1940s would be an epic journey all in itself. For this section of the story, I will be borrowing heavily from the article Lieutenant Ivan Baranovsky's P-39 and Eric Cobra's Journey to the Eastern Front and Back, written by Tim Wright on the LendLease.net website. It tells the larger story of the Lend-Lease program by profiling one of the cobras that was sent to Russia along the northwest staging and Al-Sib, or Alaska-Siberia, route, and eventually made it back to Niagara Falls as a warbird survivor. P-39Q, number 44-2911, was completed in the Bell Aircraft Factory on November 23, 1943. Sometime just before that, two young American women workers at the plant, Helen Rose and Eleanor Barbatiano, wrote their names and addresses on one of the panels of the aircraft. This was basically the 1940s version of posting on social media, and was done on a lark by these teenage war-working girls. Sometimes the pilots wrote back, and who knows what might happen. But then, after a month's delay, this Aerocobra began its epic journey to war on Christmas Day 1943, when it was flown by a member of the WASPs, the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, along the southern edge of the Great Lakes, along the U.S.-Canadian border, eventually to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and then to Ladd Army Airfield in Fairbanks, Alaska. This portion of the journey was known as the Northwest Staging Route. From Ladd Army Airfield, Soviet pilots would take over and fly across Siberia and bring the planes to war. According to Wright's article, number 44-2911, reached Fairbanks on January 9, 1944, and was accepted by a contingent of the Soviet Air Force's Foreign Service. Nearly a month later, on February 1, a Soviet pilot flew the airplane west to Nome, and across the Bering Strait to the Soviet Union. The P-39s were flown in groups of six or more, escorted by a North American B-25 or other medium bomber with more sophisticated avionics than those in the P-39. Hopping from base to base across Siberia, in March, the aircraft reached a central Siberian base at Krasnoryask, the end of the al There it received the designation White 23 and was repainted with Soviet markings, including the red stars. White 23's log shows that it flew several missions from a base near Murmansk during an October 1944 offensive to drive German forces from the Finnish town of Petsamo. Ground forces were pushing the Germans back. They occupied Petsamo and a Norwegian port, Kirkens. On November 19th, 22-year-old Lieutenant Ivan Barnosky was to fly the airplane with his squadron to the recently captured airbase Lustare near the Norwegian border. Y-23 took off from the base near Murmansk, but did not make it to Lutsare. He and the aircraft were reported missing after dropping out of formation during a ferry flight from Murmansk to Lutsare. The aircraft had made a near-perfect wheels-up landing on the ice of Lake Martiaver, 18 miles southeast of Lutzari. Sometime following the crash, the aircraft sank through the ice and came to rest on the lake bed below. Decades later, a fisherman on the lake discovered the aircraft in July 2004. He had spotted the outline of an aircraft underwater. When the aircraft was recovered, it was found that the Allison engine had quit when two engine connecting rods failed and punched through the crankcase. Found within the plane were also the remains of Lieutenant Bernoski. It is surmised that Bernoski either died on impact or was knocked unconscious and drowned when his plane sank to the bottom. Also found on board were two of his medals, the Glory Order 3rd Degree, and Military Order of the Red Banner. His logbooks were there, and several tins of canned food that had been stashed in the ammunition bays. These tins had been canned in the United States, and were also sent as part of the Lend-Lease program. It also needs to be mentioned that the signatures of Miss Rose and Miss Barbatiano were also found, still legible, in the wreck after all those years underwater. Following a salvage and recovery effort, this aircraft, first known as serial number 44-2911, then known as Y-23, was renamed Miss Lend-Lease and is now on display at the Niagara Aerospace Museum in Buffalo, New York. She now represents the thousands of men and women who worked to build, ferry, and eventually fight with these aircraft via the Lend-Lease program to Russia. There are many P-39 survivors on display around the world, and several airworthy examples in the United States, including Miss Connie at the Commemorative Air Force, and Brooklyn Bum at Lewis Air Legends in San Antonio, Texas. Originally, this episode was going to tell the story of the P-63 King Cobra also. However, the episode was starting to get pretty bloated. So I'll tell the story of that Warbird and the unbelievable story of Operation Pinball in the next one. You don't want to miss that one. I want to thank Tim Wright for his piece, Lieutenant Ivan Baranofsky's P-39 and Eric Cobra's Journey to the Eastern Front and Back, that can be found on the lend lease History and People's website. I'll be putting pictures of what we described today on the World of Warbirds Facebook page. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WowB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.